Coming to you from downtown Los Angeles this time, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm sitting down today with literary historian Lauren Glass, who is the author of a new book he's here in town to promote called Counterculture Colophon, the, uh, Grove Press, the Evergreen Review, and the incorporation of the avant-garde. Lauren, I think everybody here listening, everybody virtually here listening, uh, knows Grove Press. They know of Grove Press. They've held a Grove Press book. They've probably read a Grove Press book. But what's the first thing you want to tell someone who knows what Grove Press is, but they don't necessarily know what is the difference between a Grove Press book inherently and like a penguin book? (laughs) That's a good way to ask the question, since Grove Press is one of the only publishers in history, I think, to be recognized, sort of like an author is recognized as producing a certain kind of book, right? Penguin has various imprints, which we might identify with certain um, market niches. Uh, But in general, uh, large publishers, corporate publishers, want to appeal uh, to a breadth of readers. Mm -hmm. And most people don't go out to a bookstore to buy a Penguin book or a HarperCollins book. But it used to be, and still is to a certain degree, but less so. But when Grove was the the publisher of the counterculture, as I um, attempt to prove in my book, people actually would buy books because they were Grove Press books. And the Grove Press colophon was actually recognizable. Most people don't even know what a colophon <laughs> is, right? It's the little uh, icon at the spine of a book. Right. Um, they, they know what the thing is. They don't know what to call it. Right. Um, that's the word, although that word itself has gone through various iterations, transformations over time. But in the 20th century, it meant essentially the, the trademark or the, the brand insignia of a publisher. And those were mostly recognizable within the publishing world and within the relatively um, uh, uh, circumscribed literary world of, of, of reviewers and agents and stuff. Grove was one of the only publishers to sort of break out of that uh, bubble of people who actually care about imprints and become pretty much recognizable to a, a large chunk of American and international readers as a publisher which published a certain kind of book, usually avant-garde, um, certainly to the political left. Um, and uh, by the end of the 60s, there was really uh, almost a sort of counter Canon that was uh, designated by Grove book, books published by Grove Press in the fifties and sixties. Now the fifties and sixties, I, I want to clarify that time period. Well, first, let me say I was listening to a podcast, a publishing podcast, a while ago, where the one of the co-hosts, a publisher, I think at New Directions, was saying he visited San Francisco recently, and he said, "I went to the bookstores. He'd never been there before. I went to the bookstores and." talk to people nobody nobody knew what was a simon and schuster book or what was a penguin book or what was a new directions book it was maybe they knew that but he he was stunned that when he got out of new york people didn't know which book came from which publisher it sounds like in america maybe the 50s and 60s are the only time the average reader might care about that well that's partly because the uh book distribution um, and sales was a little bit different. Obviously, it was before the Internet, and indeed, there were lots of paperback bookstores that sold only um, quality paperbacks or certain, you know, selections from certain kinds of publishers. New Directions was, in many ways, the antecedent to Grove, and Barney Rossett, who ran Grove, um, consciously modeled his uh, his business on um, McLaughlin's New Directions, and they also had been known for publishing um, European modernist texts, and so they also would 
have been a publisher that was recognized. But even in the 50s and 60s, I mean, I found articles about uh, imprints which said even with the even with the efforts to um, design sort of recognizable lines, and also not it wasn't only the um, the caliph on the trademark; it was of course, of course, also cover design, right? And many of the um, uh, many of these publishers had tried to develop a signature look, and Grove, because of Barney Rossett's enormously fruitful um, relationship with Roy Kuhlman, who dis- designed almost all of the Grove Press covers in the in the fifties through to the late sixties, um, had this uh, uh, identifiable abstract expressionist look. Uh, and New Directions also had an identifiable look, a little more constrained, um, but still identifiable. And so there was there were those uh, a handful of lines of of publishers. But even in the sixties, I think that um, the mainstream larger publishers sometimes their imprints were recognized as such. So New American Library was no, you know, they they really um, uh, steam uh, fronted the uh, the Pipback Revolution, and folks might have recognized those types of books from you know books that they'd read in in college or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, still, Grove was. Um, uh, more identifiable and succeeded in because um, it, it also wasn't just that people bought uh, I didn't knew who Grove was but that people actually identified themselves it was like there was a um, a community of readers and writers who identified themselves through their reading of Grove Press right so it was beyond just liking those kinds of books it also became almost a sort of um, identifying marker uh, a sign of a certain sort of social affiliation if you were to own these books or, or buy these books or write for Grove. You became the kind of person who would read Grove Press or write for Grove Press. That was your identity then? To a certain degree, yes. And this happened along um, a variety of, of lines. I mean, the, the, in many ways, the, the, a lot of folks would have first run into Grove Press in college in their drama classes. Uh, Grove really cornered the market on avant-garde experimental drama, starting with people like Beckett and Ionesco and Harold Pinter, running all the way up through Stoppard. Um, and uh, since that coincided with a massive expansion of the college student population, a lot of people initially would have become familiar with Grove through that. But by the by the middle 60s, when they started to publish um, Franz Fanon and Malcolm X and those figures, it, it started to have more of a more sweeping uh, countercultural left-wing designation. And then um, I think it really was uh, part of the... Um, identity formation. Um, as uh, as um, uh, Ken Jordan, who's the son of Fred Jordan, who um, worked at Grove for a long time, you know that the counterculture needed a communications center, and uh, Grove sort of filled that uh, that need, and therefore was um, identified as as such by folks who were connected to it. And there's the the curatorial element you mentioned of Grove Press, and of course you've mentioned Barney Rossett as well, the proprietor. How much how much of what Grove Press did to curate was a direct expression of how Barney Rossett uh, would have curated. Uh, well, of course, if you had talked to Rossett, he might have said all of it. Um, <laughs> he's he's passed now, but I did get to interview him twice. And frequently in the 60s, uh, Grove Press was seen actually as a version of what some people call personality publishing. And there was a lot of writing about Grove as essentially being a um, an expression of Barney's personal tastes and preferences. And there there is a degree to which that was true. He was certainly um, uh, very insistent 
Clint's enthusiastic and sometimes um, overly impulsive in, uh, in his tastes and his decisions. But um, the way I try and look at it is more that it was a community of people who shared certain tastes and that Barney really enabled those people, and here now I'm talking about the folks who actually worked at the press, um, to uh, explore um, these genres and these new writers. So uh, it had to do with an interest in the avant-garde. They all shared an interest in the avant-garde. They all shared left-wing sympathies. Certainly the um, the uh, the central um, uh issues for which Grove is known in terms of uh, the uh, battle against censorship and the publication of obscenity, and particularly the turn to the uh, more sort of hardcore hardcore pornographic texts toward the um, later 60s, that was very much um, part of of Barney's tastes and um, Barney's impulses. But but uh, I see the the press more as a community or as a collective than as an expression of the tastes of one man. And indeed, anybody who read the essay is adapted from this book on the Los Angeles Review of Books site that appeared a few months back, I believe. They they get the sense that, and they even see stated by some people, that uh, Grove Press wasn't exactly a business as business might be commonly known. Do, do you think that is literally true? Um, well, actually, literally, it's not true, right? I mean, it was legally a business, and they did have to file with the uh, the various authorities and agencies that oversee business. Um, they had to pay money for things, and then they had to try and make money on things. They didn't make money for most of the probably the first decade. Um, and that it's funny that struggle happened on a couple of fronts for me. Um, on the one hand, uh, um, the uh, the people who I interviewed who'd worked at Grove. Um, were very uh, uh, resistant to me analyzing it as a publisher or as a business. They saw it in much more idealistic terms as a kind of collective or a community. And then people who read the book actually thought that I represented it too much as a business and felt like they were just exploiting the counterculture. They just wanted to make a quick buck or whatever. And I, I struggled with that part of the story because I wanted to... Um, get it right, I guess, um, is the easiest way to say it. And the way I resolved that is I chose to, I went back to a, a, a sort of classic of sociology, Max Weber, uh, who talks about charismatic leadership and charismatic communities. Um, and I sort of formulate Rossett as a charismatic leader who, um, and charismatic leaders are frequently enormously uh, reckless with money. And that was really the way, it was a business, um, but it was run definitely by the seat of the pants and definitely it was not run with a bottom line mentality. Barney did not care whether or not he made a profit except for that he wanted to keep the business going and, and profitable years allowed him to, you know, run more money into it. He was personally wealthy, and in fact, I think the the way to understand sort of the, the ethos around it is that um, uh, Barney basically lost his fortune on Grove Press. He died poor, um, and he uh, put all of his money and energies into that publisher. So um, it was a business in the sense that it was part of a um, capitalist culture industry, and uh, some years they made money and some years they didn't. But um, but it was run more with a kind of reckless sense of mission. And in that way, in some ways, it's simply, it simply it represents... Uh, 
the ambivalence about business that a lot of people in the publishing industry at least used to have. I don't know how much that's still so now, but publishers have frequently felt um, uh, a sense of mission and a sense of resistance to um, bottom line, profit-oriented kinds of mentality. And indeed, uh, it's still true that if you want to make money, you probably shouldn't get into publishing. Um, and the people who are good are the people who love books in, in one way or another. But Barney and, the, and his folks were just sort of a, an extreme example of this. And Barney was definitely a, um, a, a reckless person who seemed pretty um, indifferent to, uh, shall we say, organized capital accumulation. <laughs> Barney Rossett as charismatic leader of Grove Press. I mean, I think of charismatic leader and the theory surrounding that. You know, you think of cult leaders. You think of, I mean, I don't want to bring up, you know, a, a Jim Jones, but a benign, a benign Jim Jones, I guess. How similar is the fra- the intellectual framework around the way Barney Rossett led Grove and the way a cult leader leads a cult? Uh, that's an excellent question. In fact, when uh, I, I managed to get my hands on a uh, uh, an appraisal of Barney written by um, his high school principal who said that he would either be an extremist fascist leader or a great democratic leader or something along those lines. But I can't a leader. Remember. Right, a leader. Um, uh, and it's true that a lot of the charismatic leaders we know and or one model of charismatic leadership uh, is in fact fascist dictators, right? Hitler, Mussolini and those um, and those folks and, and Weber's theories in some ways um, are seen as anticipating that kind of leadership or, or analyzing it. The, um, the model that actually I went... Uh, I, I'm based myself on is actually a, a sort of revision or uh, interpretation consideration of Weber's theories by the Marxist literary critic uh, Frederick Jameson talking about vanishing mediators and there he's talking about actually um, the leaders of the early Christian church of Luther and Calvin and those uh, folks um, and the uh, the early um, the early kind of cloistered aesthetic communities that um, later uh, uh, burgeoned into um, large institutions. So the question then becomes, um, one, what is a charismatic leader, but also how do the small communities that are formed by charismatic charismatic leaders turn into larger institutional bureaucratic structures? and that happens. The model for Weber is uh, tends to be religious leaders, and they they it usually starts out as something we would call the cult. Some cults just die away when the leaders die. So Jim Jones is a good example of that. Um, other uh, other cults manage to turn into what through what uh, is sometimes called the routinization of charisma, uh, larger. Um, uh, institutions. So, um, uh, but you know, charismatic leaders, you know, Fidel is also sometimes considered a, a, a charismatic leader. Um, I actually, one of the models that I was working with were also, um, uh, leaders or figures of leadership in, um, uh, small, uh, artistic communities. Um, uh, something like, um, uh, uh, Breton in the, with the surrealists or um, groups like uh, like that and in fact I, I I found once I started to run with the Weber model I realized that it it, it is a, a sort of tempting seductive way to look at all sorts of uh, small group social formations like that but it, it certainly um, and you know uh, uh, Barney wasn't a fascist, um, but he was a uh, uh, an irrational and a stubborn man. And uh, the people who I interviewed um, 
had an, uh, a very similar combination of love and aggravation in their memory of him, right? So you could, um, uh, uh, you know, he, there are enough analogies to sort of fit those different kinds of leadership models into um, Weber's theories, or at least I think so. What, what as a reader, was your introduction to the Fruits of Grove Press? Um, as with many people, it was. I mean, I knew about uh, Beckett's work, but the but um, and the and the plays. But uh, my um, my. If you read Waiting for Godot in school, you probably read the Grove right. edition, right? It's the only edition, and all all of Beckett is Grove. And indeed, this is one thing I talk about in the book. Beckett is really, in some ways, the backbone or the ballast of Grove Press. He was discovered early uh, by Barney before he was really known, and he became a an enormously reliable, steady seller, and also a sort of sign of the literary credentials of the press. Back in those years, it was the uh, the aspiration of any publisher with literary credentials to try and find their Joyce, right? The the idea was there must be a genius out there that I can sort of, you know, bank on. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Barney was lucky, clever, insightful um, to have uh, uh, become determined to to sign Beckett. But before, uh, what, what really brought me to Grove, though, was in fact uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, Tropic of Cancer, and um, Naked Lunch. I was initially planning to write a book on obscenity, and so I went to the Grove Press Archives to research those books and the other, uh, and as I found, soon found out, a whole bunch of other books that um, that Grove had published that had challenged the um, the uh, you know the the anti obscenity laws, and uh, that was when I realized how much else that Grove had published that I hadn't. You know, I'd also read uh, Wretched of the Earth in graduate college, uh, in, in graduate school, but I um, I hadn't really pulled all these things together as having come from one institution, and then I was astonished to learn that really no one else had either. There, there was no book on Grove, and I, I, it didn't take me long to, to realize that a book on Grove was going to be more interesting <laughs> than another book on obscenity, uh, particularly since one had not been, uh, been written. But it was the, it was the, uh, it was the famous charge uh, against censorship and, and Lady Chatterley and, and Miller and those folks that, that initially got me interested in Grove. And that's, I think, in terms of their reputation in the field, that's still the, the 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 center of you know if people have historical knowledge about that it, it'll be that particularly people in publishing because many in publishing uh, Barney is seen as a real hero simply for that for having fought so hard and so persistently um, against those antiquated laws. Given your interest in obscenity, then you're you're well placed to answer the question I had, which is reading this book of yours. Counterculture Colophon, that that name, I'll pronounce it correctly the first time, one of these times, but it's memorable. (laughs) Reading the book, uh, I I intellectually know that there were trials about the obscenity of Lady Chatterley's Lover or about Tropic of Cancer, but I don't really understand it. Like, it it's too hard to envision that a trial being about a book. You know what I mean? Uh, for me, I was born in 1984, so long after, <laughs> long after anything has been considered legally obscene to the point where right. it's national news. But what what is important to understand about the, the the nature of these obscenity trials and all the legal battles that had that went that went on? Like what what about the what about the culture was was so different then that let that happen? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, uh, a simple uh, the, the 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 one name which uh, can sort of form an, <laughs> an umbrella uh, uh, political concept um, over the years um, 
directly antecedent to Grove is the name Anthony Comstock, right? So this was a dry goods clerk in the late 19th century, became uh, extremely concerned not just about um, uh, literature, uh, but about advertisements for abortifacients and birth control and um, all sorts of material in the press. And he was able to uh, get an extremely draconian law through Congress, which was named after him, called the Comstock Act. And that um, restricted all sorts of mentionings of um, sexuality, reproduction, pregnancy, birth control in any sort of literature which passed through the mails. And then all of the states as well had um, laws, many uh, very broadly and vaguely um, uh, conceived and uh, written against obscene material in print. The, uh, I, I like how you say that seems sort of oddly antiquated or even unfathomable now, and I think that's partly because um, print doesn't uh, mean as much for us now as it used to be, right? I mean, one of the things I, I, one of the ways I frame this book is it was at a time you might even think of as a time of a sort of print apocalypse when there was a really broadly literate publisher and uh, broadly literate readership and um, books were, uh, how should we say, important to people. In fact, one of the things that I, um, uh, there's an ambivalence, ambiguity to the end of censorship in that the fact of these laws against obscenity did, in a certain sense, um, acknowledge that books could be dangerous, that books could change people. And the arguments against obscenity, which is that you know no one ever was corrupted by a book or seduced by a book or whatever, which is, I suppose, true or unprovable one way or another, also means that the very power of print was diminished by this, you know, by the by the breakdown um, in the uh, in the system that had used to be used to um, uh, to uh, restrict them, uh, but a, a more uh, acute, direct answer, right? I mean, um, the uh, the question was whether books corrupted people, whether they seduced people, essentially whether they aroused people sexually. And so the the, the restrictions on these books um, had to do with a, a, a fear that certain kinds of reading. Um, very simply put, would you know, would turn you on or dis- disgust you and turn you on at the same time as some people. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of irrationality to the obscenity laws and a lot of enormous humor to the obscenity trials, by the way, which was an, an attractive part um, of uh, of writing the book. Remember, this was when um, many people f- learned about sexuality through books. Lady Chatterley's Lover was passed around amongst you know high school students hidden under beds um, and uh, leafed through and part you know with. with with certain parts that people would read over and over again, uh, simply to learn about the, the you know this is before you know sex education in the schools and whatnot, and so um, a lot of these books were uh, a sort of, of of you know form of of, of semi forbidden sex education for a generation of readers. And there's a sense in which in, in this era, and especially in the in the height of Grove's era, uh, in, in the era Grove was was at its height, books were in the in the last decades of being the quote-unquote only medium. I mean, there was television, there was radio, there were movies, but, I mean, kind of. The movies, foreign films were only just getting into, getting across America, and radio and television were still so restricted that you couldn't do a lot with it. Uh, Books were still kind of the only game in town, right? To a certain degree, yes, that's true. I mean, there is obviously a parallel history that has to do with films, and indeed I have a, a chapter on film in the book because Barney was very interested in film, and it's uh, uh, pertinent that you mention foreign films because, in fact, uh, Barney was bringing 
avant-garde foreign literature into the United States at the same time that the first foreign films were coming in um, and showing in art house theaters and, and etc. And of course they were also known as being more sexually explicit. And indeed there's a, there's a longer complicated relationship here between uh, literary and aesthetic avant-gardes and sexual explicitness, right? This goes all the way back to uh, Baudelaire and, and, and Flaubert. So um, movies were also an issue. Of course, movies, um, the, the film industry had essentially agreed to self-regulate with the formation of the Motion Picture Production Code. Mm-hmm. And um, because of, on one level, the, the, the timidness of, the, uh, of, the, of Hollywood, um, they had really, uh, between the, the beginning of the code in the 30s and, and the, the, its breakdown, down in the 60s um, had had basically bowed down under pressure and agreed to, to self-regulate. But both film and uh, books, there was a parallel sort of um, disintegration of constraints, slow motion but inevitable uh, or seemingly inexorable over the 50s and 60s in terms of what could be shown. But there was, a, an, a, there was sort of an agreement also that there was something different, uh, possibly legally or maybe even ontologically between what film is and what books are. Mm -hmm. And so it was easier to break down the barriers with books, which did not have actual physical you know, visual, physical depiction of um, people engaged in various acts, although Barney was all for that uh, as, as, as well. And then there's the whole other problem, which I uh, get to here, but I've written about elsewhere, um, about dirty words, about just a handful of words, as George Carlin, uh, you know, there must be something really bad about them. Um, and in truth, uh, there's a whole angle on the story, which is just about trying to get that handful of words in print. And uh, writers, particularly uh, a lot of the male modernists, um, liked these words, wanted to use them, uh, liked their aesthetic power, and liked their, uh, and also felt that they wanted to um, represent, you know, habits of speech that uh, that people really use. Now, other people had mystical, weird mystical thing about, you know, I mean, Lawrence had a whole theory about dirty words that that Miller partly bought into, and there was a sense that um, uh, these words themselves, if, if, you know, sort of set free would uh, cleanse our consciousness. Um, Not quite true, but, you know, there was a, uh, there was a, a far less known than the free speech movement. There was a briefly lived uh, dirty speech movement in Berkeley, and people read Lady Chatterley's Lover Out Loud and Sprout Plaza. And, uh, so there's a, there's a number of vectors going um, on here, uh, basically in, in dismantling a regime that on various levels, both formal and informal, had been in place in terms of what could be published or depicted um, in the broad public culture for a while. And, and what the effect of that was that there was always an underground of that stuff, right, both the movies and the books. And what uh, what Grove essentially did was brought that underground out into the open. You no longer had to buy the books from under the, uh, under the counter or through some, you know, uh, fly-by-night mail order. Brown, the sort of brown paper bag, right. brown wrapper. Yeah. Are there dirty words anymore in, in 21st century America? Oh, actually, it's astonishing the staying power of those words. Uh, they still determine um, the censorship, both formal and informal, of television. Um, you'll probably notice on network television, you still don't hear... I'm not even sure I can use... The, I can in this podcast. You can say so, whatever uh, you want oh, here. Good, yes, but, I mean, right. <laughs> the, the whole thing is, network television, is n- that's not... 
there aren't 200 million Americans watching network television yeah. every night. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what network television censors, in a sense, because they're kind of marginal themselves, right? I think that's definitely true, although it still, I think, is a, 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 a sort of symptomatic fact that they, uh, that they, that they uh, have, in, this, in essence, agreed. I believe that, I mean, they, the FCC still has various, uh, and on radio, you, uh, um, of course, radio, you know, network radio is also disappearing. Right. But you know where you see it that's much more? we're listening to podcasts. <laughs> where you see it much more persistently, and I know this because I teach. Um, now, of course, all my students swear, and, and it's enormously liberating for them when I put the word fuck on the board and we talk about it. But um, I would say still 80 to 90% of them uh, feel that you should not swear in front of children. Uh, and I still, I find an astonishingly broad swath of people raised in all sorts of different environments. Um, and even, you know, I, I was raised with parents who swore in front of me. But, you know, I have kids now and I still am occasionally, I, you know, I find myself self-censoring. There's some sense that, uh, um, you know, these words are what should only be used by adults. That, that seems silly. But um, there's still, I have found, and I have not done any formal survey, but there is still a fairly widespread acceptance of the fact fact that these are kids that uh, these are words that you do not say in front of kids and then that creates the inevitable desire of, of your kids to say those words and that it, yes. it's part of growing up right is is learning about dirty words and 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 pissing off your parents with them so <laughs> they I, I, there's there's a possibility i'm not a i'm not an essentialist but uh i i've read linguists on on this and it does seem to be a certain need and i think almost all languages have dirty words they're not the same they don't always refer to the same things but there tends to be taboo words or forbidden words um and it's almost as if you have to save certain words to have a certain power that other words don't, mm -hmm. and forbidding them gives them that power. I, I, I'm not sure how much I buy that explanation, but it, it certainly persisted um, quite astonishingly. I mean, obviously in print, who cares? You can say whatever. But, um, but those words are still restricted by um, place, time, and uh, uh, speaker, auditor. Mm -hmm. It is a bit strange. We want, we want, in some sense, those words to have that power. You know, there's that argument that goes around that says everybody should say every racial slur freely because that will take the power away from racial slurs. Then nobody will use them because they're not offensive. You know, but there's, we sort of want, we want words to keep power sometimes? I think that's true and it's also true that we don't uh, simply saying a word, even, you know, I mean uh, Lenny Bruce tried to do this with the N-word and it seems to have failed. Words do shift in who can say them and when and um, and there's a way in which uh, racial slurs may be of a slightly different category, although they're obviously related um, to what, uh, to what uh, you know, I'm looking at as, as quote-unquote dirty words which are words which refer to um, either, uh, right, body parts or, or sexual acts um, but uh, um, and you know the, there was a, the people thought in the 60s that uh, the power of words like fucking shit had been sapped somewhat by the fact that they said so much and that may be true to a certain degree but I think that uh, here one have to, would have to agree that language is how should we say symptomatic in other words if there's still a racial problem in the country then there are going to be words that are going to uh, trouble people and simply uh, saying it's not about the words, words it's yeah, about right. the underlying condition that's right but language does seem to reflect these things in this way and um, and taboo words seem to be a very important element in language. And indeed, uh, to go back to the dirty words, um, I mean, a lot of people felt like uh, uh, some of the linguists I read looked at, at dirty words as... Um, 
proto, a sort of proto language of frustration and aggravation, like these are the first things that were shouted out by our ancestors <laughs> when they stubbed their toe or whatever. Um, but it's true that we need we need words in order to ex- express um, uh, both anger and frustration, but also uh, uh, forms of camaraderie um, and group membership. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, taboos and restrictions on language tend to, to to be part and parcel of that that function of language. Thinking about the power of, of dirty words and the obscenity trials that Grove went through, I think of something I heard, I think, Clive James once say, which is that if you want to bring poetry back, uh, just ban it. That will make it popular <laughs> among... Nothing could make poetry more popular among young people than if you ban poetry, ban it all immediately. Then the interest in poetry will come back. That's not entirely disconnected from all this we've been talking about, right? Uh, you're, it's not, although uh, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking of how many thousands of undergrads we have who want to study poetry at the University of Iowa. <laughs> I may be in an, uh, an unrepresentative location, uh, but one of the, and this is not a... And this is a place with more library patrons than, than residents, right, yeah, on the well, census? And, and more poets, I think, per capita than any place in the world. Um, but I will say, uh, nationwide, and this is a little off to the side, but uh, creative writing, for whatever reasons, is a growth industry, um, and if you, if, you, if you banned poetry, there would be a lot of creative writing professors out of work <laughs> But um, one thing I can say... Teaching in secret, I guess. Um, One thing I can say is that uh, one of the things that Barney learned and that uh, um, folks were able to sort of leverage in this time is that uh, obscenity trials are also enormously good publicity, and people will want to buy a book which has been censored or has been even threatened to be censored. And indeed, um, there's a whole species of modernist texts which have... um, uh, established a certain allure through being forbidden or through having certain words in them. So there certainly is a level of literary appeal there. I don't, I don't talk about it as much in this book. I have written another essay on modernism and dirty words where I show that there is actually some correlation between um, some of the theories of, of aesthetic and literary language and some of the understandings of what kind of language dirty words were, right? And if, 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 you're think, if you want to think of words as acts, if you want to think of them as, as performative, which means that they can hurt or help, then there is a way in which... Um, Dirty words and literary language can have, um, uh, at least in certain theories of literature, have a um, uh, an interesting sort of consonance. Whether you're reading, we're reading these books in the 1950s and the 1960s, or seeing these foreign films in the 50s and 60s that showed things and said things that you weren't getting in America's homegrown culture. You know, I think of a line, uh, an observation Anthony Lane from the New Yorker made once. He said, "You know, there was a time when, when." It was a it was a great cultural duty to go see these foreign films, to go see Ingmar Bergman movies, or to read Henry Miller. And it wasn't you weren't on the fringe. It was in a, in a strange sense the fringe was the the fringe became the center for a while there, right? Absolutely, and uh, in some ways you're describing the the broad demographic shift, which uh, my my book depicts a uh, one. <laughs> pattern of the shift, which is how what was if what was originally um, on the fringe, in other words, what was originally more of a bohemian subcultural ethos in, say, Greenwich Village or in North Beach or in various um, uh, bohemias and proto-bohemias in cities um, in the United States and in Europe, gradually over the 20th century, that, that ethos became more and more acceptable, more and more hip. Um, and 
and the post-war period is um, in many ways a sort of tipping point when what had been very much on the margins became much more mainstream. And indeed, what had been mainstream became on the margins. One of the, the revelatory moments I had in doing some of this research was when I came across some of the material that was produced by uh, the Legion of Decency and the Citizens for Decent Literature. Uh, and these people were clearly enormously poorly funded, working out of the seat of their pants, working from mimeographed kinds of newsletters oh. and stuff. Smudges um, all over them. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and uh, you know, these people had been represented, you know, the, the heartland, the mainstream, the, the sort of, of um, ideological center of the United States previously. But it was clear that they were on a, um, uh, you know, at least in this uh, particular battle, um, on the losing side and had, had fewer resources and that the um, mainstream culture was increasingly adopting um, a, a sexual and cultural ethos that had been more um, representative of bohemian subcultures earlier. And Grove, uh, I think Grove is in some ways a missing link in that story. I mean, most histories of the 60s tell that story in one way or another, uh, but uh, interestingly enough, none of those histories have focused on, you know, what was in many ways the communication center enabling that change, enabling that sort of main, more mainstream distribution of texts which um, before had been uh, either not available at all or only available through sort of marginal outlets. The span of Grove's heyday in the 20th century, is that the same as the span of time that it makes sense to discuss the counterculture. I mean, you wouldn't say counterculture today. Uh, I don't think you'd say it in the mid, mid you know, post-war through the seventies, probably. Yeah, I mean, I see the book uh, as uh, straddling what is sometimes seen as the long sixties, right? Which is from the late fifties to the early seventies. It was in some ways convenient for me that I mean, so Barney brought, bought the press. I think it was fifty-one, I think, um, and he actually owned it technically all the way through till. Um, I believe it was 82. I end in, in the early 70s because there was a, a, a feminist occupation of the press and, a, and a, a sort of collapse, a business collapse of the press at the same time. Um, and of course, uh, uh, by the end of the book, the counterculture has sort of become the culture. Um, there are definitely people who uh, disagree with me about this. And indeed, one of the questions, I'm sure I'll get it tonight, I get it every time I read, is, you know, what is the avant-garde now? Or what is the counterculture now? Or can you do something like Grove now? Um, and uh, basically, I think that one one way, one answer to that question is certainly no, right? The counterculture. Now, all the things that were countercultural then are mainstream enough so that you don't really have to worry about getting put in jail for for them. On the other hand, another thing you could say, though, is emphatically, yes, what you could say is what Grove did was made avant-garde and countercultural kind of work legitimate so that now you can do all kinds of stuff that you couldn't do before, um, but it's just not seen as as threatening as um, as it used to be. You know, you won't be the subject of a, an obscenity trial or you won't have to go to um, jail. And indeed, for the most part, there's still art, obviously, uh, not literary art anymore. Um, there's still art that gets... Uh, legally challenged, although it's hard to do something, at least since the NEA 4, uh, that'll really bring down the, um, uh, you know, the forces against you. There still are laws against obscenity on the, on the book, and obscenity, I mean, obscenity is still an exception, uh, to the, to the First uh, Amendment. But, um, I tend to be one of those people who feels that the counterculture was enabled by a certain sort of concatenation of forces in the 60s, and that while there are people who adopt you know, versions of those values, um, it doesn't play the same role or have the same relationship to a mainstream that, than it used to. 
Yeah, the counterculture has to be counter something, right? Mm-hmm. Contra something. What do you? What would you be against these days? I mean, the question your book brought up for me wasn't what is the avant-garde today, but what is the mainstream today? <laughs> uh, that's an excellent question. I mean, one one way, of course, it's been been seen is that what we now have instead of a mainstream and a resistance is simply a lot of niche cultures. Um, you know, I mean, there's still uh, I don't know. New Kids on the Block or Justin Bieber or whatever. I mean, there's still uh, um, uh, stuff which seems to have a broader appeal than others. Still Adele. Right. Um, And then, you know, there's there's the Rolling Stones who are like the ultimate establishment, right? Who are the... um, uh, so one thing to say is that there's lots of niche culture, single issue politics. So if you're engaged in um, queer politics, Chicano politics, or various kinds of, or or environmental politics, um, then you can have a uh, a specific enemy um, and a specific cause. And then obviously, then you can you can see a um, uh, a power struggle or a power dynamic somewhat um, uh, parallel. Uh, to the um, the the broader struggles of the of the sixties, but as we've seen from the dare I say the the failure of the Occupy movement, I don't actually, but I mean through the through the difficulties of uh, of coalition politics and broad kinds of, of cultural coalitions now um, in the uh, um, uh, in stuff like the Occupy movement, I think you see the difficulty in forming that kind of idea of a countercultural against the mainstream, which really gets. Um, a lot of people on board. Now, there are a variety of reasons for this. I mean, one of the main ones being Vietnam War. Um, but uh, certainly um, times have changed, and I think Grove Press was part of enabling uh, that change, ironically enough, right? I mean, in some way, it's a, a, uh, there are some ways in which I suppose it could be considered a Pyrrhic victory. Mm. I was in college before the Occupy movement, but I think you know the days I was in college, it was long after uh, the heyday of protest in America, the students would still want to protest things, and they would try, but I always got the vibe, it's, it's too late, it's, <laughs> it's way too late. Um, it's, it was more pretending, uh, pretending that the conditions were right for protest. And, you know, you mentioned the feminist occupation of Grove Press in 1971. Uh, even that sounds quaint, you know, of the <laughs> occupation, both feminist and occupation, the... the, the the meanings of both those words are so different now than they were then that it's you, there's there's a lot you have to contextualize. Am I, am I correct? Oh, I agree entirely. Although I, st- I think that there's a level at which, uh, oddly, you know, in good ways and bad, a lot of the energies in those movements still come from the '60s. I mean, you know, Todd Gitlin has just come out with a book on the Occupy movement, and he was enormously galvanized by it. Um, again, in colleges, I think you would again see more single issue stuff. I mean, I remember when I was in college, anti-apartheid activism was big. Uh, sweat shop stuff was big, and it tended to be more about um, a particular tangible issue where you sort of knew what the objective was, you knew who the enemy was, you weren't going to bring down the whole American government or end capitalism, you just wanted to end this offense, right? right. Um, and I think there's been, you know, there's been some living wage stuff that's gone on on some uh, some schools. The Occupy stuff, I had a very sobering moment with the Occupy movement when I was, I was teaching a cultural studies class, and I told my students to go. Um, to we had a, a tiny little Occupy group at a, at, a, at a local park, and they were afraid. 
Um, and there were very few of my students who felt sympathetic with the Occupy movement, and the ones who did go there were afraid. And unfortunately, they were shouted down by some aggressive old lady when they were there. They said that, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It was, they probably went during the day when there wasn't. But in any case, um, it, was, it had nothing like the broad-based support. That um, Now, of course, it's important. People frequently remind us that the counterculture, it wasn't like everyone were hippies smoking pot in the 60s either, right? right? That, was, right. They were, they, that were to someone. I've seen the photo. Some of those guys had crew cuts. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there was, a, there was a broad coalition that felt that, that felt like in general things were going wrong and needed to be fought. And the word, you know, the real word I think that has changed its resonance um, is the word revolution, right? I mean, in the 60s, uh, you could talk, I remember my father talking about that there was going to be a revolution or some, you know, this person believed there was going to be a revolution. And uh, now you're hard put to, to find that um, word used in a way which really uh, galvanizes people or resonates a large group of people. You still have all sorts of activism along various axes and actually feminism is one of the examples of on the one hand, you know, the women's lib uh, um, uh, and of course the term women's lib is not really uh, timely anymore and the occupation had its actual farcical elements as those who will read my book will will see. Um, on the other hand uh, feminism has had such a broad level of mostly success, although there's also been retrenchment, um, that uh, that's one of the movements that I think, you know, has been legitimately pluralized, right? Feminisms, and there's all sorts of uh, uh, activism based around sexuality, sexual identity, gender identity, that is um, part of the, the legacy of feminism. I mean, uh, we're still, in, a, in some ways, struggling around with the legacy of these terms from the 60s. I think a lot of people, although it may be a little different with younger people, um, still uh, the the energy and effect of those terms. I mean, you know, we still study uh, Wretched of the Earth. I don't know how many people want to actually put it into action, but... Um, and actually, some of the revolutionary books from the 60s do seem uh, incredibly quaint and naive, and it's hard to believe that people um, believe some of the stuff that they wrote in those books. Now, writing this book, how... How initially cooperative did you find the surviving players from that era wanting to, uh, as far as wanting to talk and remember about those times? On the whole, very cooperative. Um, uh, you know, most for the most part, these people wanted their stories to be told and uh, and were frustrated that the story hadn't been told yet. Um, Barney is a very uh, experienced interviewee, um, and he was used to talking, and he was always want to talk. He would start to talk as soon as he would sit down, <laughs> frequently before I even asked him a question. Um, and he had been interviewed many times, and he was uh, always, you know, he was um, obviously a, a sort of force of nature type of a guy, um, always willing to talk, always willing to argue, um, uh, always willing to, to get angry about how things had been accounted for. Uh, some of the other people, um, I mean, part of the challenge, of course, was getting them just to remember at all. Uh, yeah. Some of the folks were very old and um, had trouble dredging up memories from that time. There were some people uh, who were a little bit more reluctant to speak with me. And indeed, one of the things that came up as I was reading that I did my best to try and account for, it wasn't just that people remembered things differently, but it was clear to me also that there were actually... Uh, rivalries and schisms within the press that I was not going to be able to fully uncover, um, partly because people were just going to give me, you know, conflicting narratives, but also because some of the key people were no longer with us, so I wasn't going to be able to uh, get 
all the parts of the story. And I've done my best to, um, you know, Richard Seaver's book came out recently and his wife is, uh, you know, convinced that Barney is rewriting history and that actually he was the, you know, the backbone of the press. Um, and there were battles... I read the review of this book, by the way, on lareviewofbooks.org. Right, yeah, I wrote the review of the book and it's a lovely book. And, uh, and, and Seaver was no doubt central. I mean, part of what I do with this, all of these questions is just nuance them by calling it a community instead of, you know, and not giving Barney all of the... Uh, all of the credit. But the simple answer is that on the most part, and actually it was one of the most rewarding things about writing this book, was being able to finish it and have the people, unfortunately not Barney, but the other people, read the book and really love it. So Fred Jordan has really loved the, um, has really loved the book. Astrid, Barney's widow, um, really, uh, really loved the book. And um, other folks who um, uh, you know, helped me put it together. Um, and it was really, you know, I, I, up till now I've mostly written about dead people. Um, writing about people still alive who are like glad that you wrote about them is an, an enormously rewarding um, experience. So that's been a really good part of writing the book. How did the book transform from an academic project into a what would you call what would you call the audience now that you're that you have written for in this book? That's an excellent question, and in some ways, um, I, I well, in some ways, I'm still grasping for an audience. But the the simple answer to that question, though, I'm hoping, is boomers. Uh, anyone who was involved in the movement, as you used to say, and that was all you used to be. And actually, I had a struggle with the editors about capitalizing movement because oh, <laughs> I said, you know, back then it was with a capital M. Um, so anyone who is in the movement, I think, not only would like this book, but should read this book. I think it's in some ways it's a hidden history of the '60s that will immediately resonate with anyone who was um, uh, present at that time and read those books. So that's my mainstream um, uh, audience that I still have yet to really hit, but maybe this will help it. Um, and then more narrowly, my audience is in this uh, um, changes within the academic world and this the development of um, book studies, history of the book, sociology of literature, um, new approaches to, I mean, you know, it's interesting that in, in my own field of, of literary criticism, literary history, there are very few histories of publishers and very few appreciations of the role of publishers until recently. So um, I have a you know, a, a, a somewhat narrower audience in um, academics and students who are interested in those developments. And then I'm hoping that I have a larger uh, audience who are basically, uh, you know, friends and colleagues of my parents. I mean, in some ways, this was an autobiography of my parents' reading uh, list. I mean, my parents were activists. My mom was in the women's movement. Um, uh, my father was in the movement. Um, and, uh, you know, they read Grove Press books, too. Uh, in fact, we, uh, in early in my life, I grew up on St. Mark's Place, which is right around the block from where, you know, Grove was located. Uh, so... Um, my hope is that uh, is that the people who went through this will will want to um, read the history of the institution that that you know helped make it happen. Now, I, I would guess that you were not reading age yourself in the 1960s. So what 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 fell together about or what fell into place about your view of the 60s as a cultural era from all this research, from these conversations, from bringing it all together, all together in this book? What made more sense about 60s culture from writing counterculture, Colophon? Um, well, so I, it's true. I wasn't reading uh, in this. I was born in 1964, which actually puts me technically, I think, uh, the last year of the baby boomers. But, um, but I'm a I'm a product of the 60s, but 
that who did not grow up in the 60s. But I did grow up in the San Francisco Bay Area in which we tried to keep the 60s alive for as long as we possibly could. Remnants may still um, be hanging on there. And I think that a part of me was uh, uh, injected with a certain kind of combination of nostalgia and curiosity about um, the, uh, the engagements uh, that had driven my parents and informed my parents uh, during my youth. So like I said, I, I do remember my father. I remember when my father uh, um, when my father and mother were splitting up and my, my father was hooking up with another woman and he said, well, she knows there's going to be a revolution. Oh, <laughs> and wondering like, oh, okay, so my stepmother will also know. Um, I mean, but, you know, just the, the understand. And, and then, of course, I, I, I would say in some ways even more, I mean, my mom, when they split up, my mom was in consciousness raising groups. I remember the groups, uh, you know, chanting and doing stuff in the in the living room while I was going to bed. Um, and of course, in uh, being in the 60s in Berkeley, growing up in the 70s in Berkeley, you certainly were still aware of um, the sort of roiling political and cultural issues that had held over from the 60s. And I was very much, um, you know, I maintained a lot of the political investments as well as cultural um, tastes uh, from my uh, from my parents' generation. So to a certain degree, the answer to that question was something that I was searching for as I was writing this book. You know, so I didn't I didn't know it in advance. And indeed, I didn't even directly plan to write this book. Um, But I did see it as as a sort of literary autobiography of my, you know, my parents reading list, but is therefore also as part of the uh, my immediate um, uh, uh, cultural um, bequest, I guess you could say, and to a certain degree, all of ours. I mean, um, some decades matter all than the others. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, Jameson somewhere calls the 60s a black box. Um, I think we're all in various ways contending with the uh, the consequences with or the after effects of that cultural revolution. And it just so happened that I stumbled upon, you know, a sort of missing chapter of it. Do you think your parents thought the revolution happened or didn't happen, or what, what was that? What, what do you think their view had been of the of the end of the revolution? My dad said that they sat down one day and decided that they had won, and then they just all split up and went their other ways. Uh, more recently, my stepmother came up to me and said, "Boy, we lost." Um, and actually, I have a more—I uh, don't—I won't say it's a more nuanced approach. I think that. The cultural revolution in many ways was won, but the political one was lost. So uh, politically and economically, you know, it's still a capitalist system. Uh, politically, um, power has shifted in certain very important ways. Obviously, President Obama represents that. But in many ways, our political system is, uh, has as many um, exploitative and uh, objectionable aspects. as It wasn't fundamentally changed by the 60s in its shape, um, which is an additional irony in the sense that, you know, if you go back to the... Um, uh, to SDS, early SDS and the Port Huron Statement, it was more reformist than revolutionary anyway. Um, and actually, uh, uh, when I talk to the Grove Press people, um, there's an ambivalence there too. I mean, um, uh, Fred Jordan in some ways does feel, you know, that part of the way, part of the reason that um, uh, Grove Press lost its influence was because to a certain degree it succeeded, right? The Cultural Revolution was such that you no longer needed one institution to spearhead this kind of stuff. Now everybody was free to publish it and you didn't need um, a vanguard like that before. So that's a that's an actually a very complicated question. But I think that um, uh, my, my feeling is that there was 
a cultural revolution. It didn't unfold in all the ways that people expected. It didn't achieve all that people thought it would achieve. But it did achieve a lot, and a lot of that was should be credited to Grove and, and institutions um, like it. Uh, there are obviously other ways in which um, the revolution was, uh, you know, was a failure, or the changes that people aspired for um, were. Um, and, and indeed, there are, there are levels at which there was a retrenchment and a um, and a, a reaction against um, those developments. And what do you think your young students would stand to learn from the history of Grove Press, the ones who, for whom it is distant history? <laughs> That's an excellent question, and I, I haven't taught a class just on Grove Press, although I've taught many Grove Press books. Um, one of the thing, one of the ways that I teach, though, uh, that I use my teaching about Grove is simply for people, for students to understand that um, uh, books are more than just text. Um, in other words, books are also objects in uh, a field, and you need to look at how they're designed. You, it's you know important to look at who edited them, um, at what the business of publishing was like at the period that they um, that they were published. In fact, you know the the very idea that publishing the publishing context of a book is of interest is actually only recently been something that we've taught students at all. Right? Usually, it's just the text, and we do some sort of a close uh, a close reading. Um, of that. Uh, I've taught classes on um, obscenity, and uh, as you can imagine, those classes are always um, uh, uh, well attended huh. and uh, and exciting. Um, and indeed, talking about sex in literature, is, and actually, I, I secretly think that actually literature, I'm not secretly because I'm telling you right now, sure. I think literature was secretly sex education for a long time before you could talk about sex in school. So, you know, you could talk about a sex scene in Romeo and Juliet because it was Shakespeare, but you couldn't talk about, right, actual, you know, clinical sex matters. Um, and so uh, teaching obscenity um, is always an exciting way to talk about literature, always an exciting way to talk about the relationship between aesthetics and morality, um, an interesting way to talk about gender and power and, and all of those things. So um, uh, in many ways, and, you know, this was, Barney was, Barney just wanted to get everything out there. Uh, he wasn't necessarily, I mean, he loved Henry Miller, which, uh, you know, always sort of mystifies me, but, um, <laughs> but it was more get it out there and let people talk about it than deciding whether it was good or bad. And so, um, you know, I'm glad that I don't have to, you know, check with my department chair before teaching <laughs> Tropic of Cancer and Naked Lunch. And Naked Lunch still blows people's minds. People are still, you know, they'll say, you know, I was reading this on the bus and I had to close it. Um, <laughs> so there's a way in which that kind of writing still has um, a purchase and a power um, and an appeal. Uh, I'll also say that um, a lot of the uh, um, Henry Miller and also some the beats like Kerouac, those are figures that one of the few handful of figures where uh, you'll have students who have already read them on their own, right, because they actually actually liked them. So there's clearly also a populist element to what Grove did that still seems to have a certain sort of, of uh, residual presence. And indeed, when I talked to Morgan Entrican, the current owner of Grove Press, he conceded to me that they, you know, they rely a lot on their backlist, right? Henry Miller and, and Samuel Beckett are still uh, those sorts of reliable players. And indeed, one of the great things about a lot of the Grove Press books is uh, they still raise some of the similar kinds of probing and difficult questions that we want literature to raise for our students so on that level. The only difference is now, like I said, we don't have to ask for permission to, to teach them. We can just um, teach them. So, you know, in a way, I feel like every day, thank you to Grove Press <laughs> for my freedom uh, to teach what I want. 
I've been speaking here in downtown Los Angeles in the stately Biltmore Hotel with Lauren Glass, literary historian who is visiting from the University of Iowa, here talking about his new book, Counter Culture Caliphon, uh, Grove Press, the Evergreen Review, and the incorporation of the avant-garde. Lauren, thanks so much. Thank you, Colin. It was a great pleasure. This has been the podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books. You can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.